Hey everybody, welcome back to my channel. If you've been here before, I love and appreciate all of your love and support. I love you guys so much. If you're new here, I, I hope you enjoy and you stay a while. But if you're somebody that's been here from the start, I really appreciate you. I love going through and talking to you guys in the comments. We just hang out here and we talk about mafia members. It's all love. So uh, come join. I think I'm going to change the day that I put my videos out to Tuesdays because every single week I've been putting my video out on Tuesday and it's coming out late because I want to put it out on Monday, but I don't know any name for Tuesday. So if you could think of like a witty thing that I can say with Tuesdays like Mafia Mondays or Mobsters Mondays, come up with something for Tuesdays and let me know because I'm so bad with stuff. Like I have absolutely no imagination. So I really appreciate your ideas. So anyway, today's mobster comes from a YouTube comment. I always say at the end of my videos that you guys can send me suggestions on who I should cover next. And this one was suggested by Fat Laces The Dawn. So shout out to you because I recognize that you comment on all my videos and I love that you keep coming back. So please keep being awesome and thank you so much for the tip. Vincenzo Colosimo, now known as James Big Jim Colosimo, or as Diamond Jim, was born on February 16, 1878. He was born in Colosimi, a province of Casanza in Italy. His parents, Luigi Colosimo and Giuseppe Mascaro, his second wife, had four children together. They had Vincenzo, two sons, Antonio and Frank Colosimo, and one daughter, Elisabetta Bettina Seraldo. Colosimo came to America and went straight to Chicago by himself when he was 17 years old. Before coming to America, he had absolutely no formal schooling whatsoever. So he didn't go to school a day in his life back in Italy before the age of 17. And I don't think he went at all even after. He just never went to school in his life. He became a street cleaner and had absolutely nothing. Like this boy had not a dime to his name. He hardly had more than a broom, a shovel, and a cart. Like he was broke. He didn't have a home. He had nothing. As soon as he got to America, Colosimo started pulling petty crimes on the streets of Chicago. He began distributing grapes to Sicilian families on the west side of Chicago, and then he began selling the wine that the grapes made. His petty crimes were ballsy enough to be noticed by Michael Hinkydink Kenna and John Coughlin. They were both first ward aldermen. Michael Hinkydink Kenna was Chicago's first ward alderman from 1897 to 19. 1923 and 1939 to 1943. He was also a committee man of the first ward for the Democratic Party from 1893 to 1944. He and his partner, Bathhouse John Coughlin, controlled the section of Chicago known as Levy for almost 50 years. Everybody knew that he and Coughlin were corrupt. Literally the entire world knew who this man was and that he was completely corrupt. He was known for bribing homeless people to vote for him and vote for who he wanted to be elected. He was also known for committing voter fraud whenever his bribes didn't work. So if he went out and bribed a whole bunch of people to vote for the person that he wanted, if it wasn't enough and that person still wasn't going to be voted in, he would just go and commit voter fraud and get them in that way. In other words, if he wanted somebody elected, that was going to happen one way or another. His way went. That was it. They supported sex workers, pimps, tavern owners, and gamblers. Everybody that was pulling any kind of things that are 
illegal in this town. And they supported them in exchange for protection from law enforcement and obviously for kickbacks and for vote. They were known as the Lords of the Levy, the Levy being the first ward that they controlled. Colosimo's rise to power never would have happened without the Lords of the Levy. They were extremely loyal to those who they choose to support, and they made sure that the people that they were supporting succeeded in whatever they were planning to do. They let Colosimo, as precinct captain, run illegal gambling rackets and brothels and whatever he wanted to do that was illegal, as long as he made sure to deliver the votes so that they could win the elections for themselves or for whoever they wanted to have elected at the time. They got Colosimo involved in the mafia, and Colosimo quickly became a maid member. Before long, they had him as a precinct captain and then as a bagman. That's a pretty intense position because the bags that they're taking, they're filled with a shit ton of money or a shit ton of drugs. So these, they really have to trust the person that they're using for this position. So the fact that they put Colosimo in that position meant that they really trusted him, despite the fact that he was a complete crook and criminal. He organized the city's street sweepers into an influential political organization, so pretty much he made them a union. He took all the street sweepers in the city of Chicago, brought them together, and made a union out of them. And it ended up getting a lot of political influence. While he was running money back and forth, he came into contact with some really important people. He started to make friends and gain political connections. When you're in the mafia, pretty much like if you have friends in high places, you go high places. This was just the start for Big Jim Colosimo. It was about to get huge for him. He earned the nickname Diamond Jim because he wore a white suit with diamond pins. He wore a lot of rings and he wore a whole bunch of just super flashy jewelry. He always had a lot of money worth of jewelry, suits, everything. The more he could spend on his appearance, the better. In 1902, Colosimo was married to Victoria Moresco. Victoria was already an established Chicago madam. Victoria was six years older than Colosimo, and she had been running two dollar-a-go whorehouses in Chicago for years already. She was the one that got Colosimo involved in the prostitution world. Moresco was born in Italy to seven brothers and sisters. It's a big family. Her family came over to New York in the 1880s and settled in Chicago in 1891. She grew up in a part of Chicago that was known as Little Hell because it was an Italian slum that was known for the crimes that took place over there at all times. When she grew up, she moved to the south side of Chicago and opened a brothel in the Levy District, and that's how she ended up coming into contact with Colosimo. Colosimo and Moresco worked together and quickly opened their first brothel together. This first brothel was called the Victoria. It was a parlor house on Armour and 21st Street. They had a piano player called Izzy the Rat playing piano there all night long, so it was a classy place. Victoria had a nephew that was involved in the mafia. Her nephew, John the Fox Torrio, quickly became super close with Colosimo. They're both in the mafia. They have a similar interest in Victoria. So they just 
hit it off. They they got along really well really quick. For some reason, I see that there's argument among historians over whether Colosimo was actually Torrio's uncle. People have said that there's no evidence that he's actually his uncle, but I think the fact that he's Victoria's nephew automatically makes him Colosimo's nephew when he gets married, doesn't it? Like, I don't know why people question it. If I got married to my husband and he has a nephew, that's now my nephew and he's going to call me Aunt Dana. So I'm confused. I don't understand why people spend time trying to prove that it's not his nephew. It is his nephew. He's his wife's nephew. Nephew-in-law, I mean, maybe. But if you just tell people every time like, oh, he's my nephew-in-law, I'd get offended after a while. Like, what? Am I not good enough to just be your nephew, period? Like, people just fixate on really dumb things. After his marriage to Victoria and opening his first brothel, Colosimo's star began to rise pretty quickly. He had expanded to nearly 200 brothels within two years. Literally, let's just sit back and think about that for a second. In 1902, he opened his first brothel. That was Victoria's third brothel at the time. They're just sitting there celebrating the new millennia like, yay, it's the 1900s. Two years later, they open one brothel together. Two years after that, in 1904, they had 200 brothels. That's absolute insanity. Imagine opening a 7-Eleven today, right here and now. You're going to be so stressed about running it correctly, figuring out the business, hiring an awesome staff. You're probably not even going to think about opening another 7-Eleven until this one is perfectly ironed out. Colosimo and Victoria did this and they opened 199 more in the next two years. It's absolute insanity. The drive and ambition on these guys, just wow. Chicago was known as the nation's brothel and Colosimo became the top pimp in the nation's brothel. So he was the top of the top of the top when it came to prostitution in America at the time. He had started getting into the gambling and racketeering game as well. Gambling around this time was a booming industry. This is around the time that Frank Costello started putting slot machines all over New York. Once the mayor threw all those slot machines in the river, he moved over to New Orleans and teamed up with Carlos Marcello to cover all of New Orleans and all the way over to Texas with illegal slot machines. And that made everybody super friggin' rich. But this is during the time before the mayor stepped in in New York. So at this time, Frank Costello was probably still in New York with his slot machines, which means that Colosimo was probably putting illegal slot machines all over Chicago as well. He's also running numbers, doing betting, every kind of gambling that you can imagine Colosimo is involved in. Colosimo started to run into trouble in 1909. The Black Hand extortion racket started to become a pretty serious threat to him and the entire empire that he had built in Chicago. The Black Hand extortion racket. Listen, I covered this really well in the video about Gallucci. So if you want a lot of details on the subject, go over there, check it out. But here I'll just do a brief overview for those who haven't seen that video yet. The Black Hand Extortion Ring is a racket that sends a letter to every Italian-born immigrant in America with a black handprint printed on the front of the letter. If you got this letter from the black hand, you knew you had to pay a fee every month to the racket. If you didn't pay, yourself or your family would be kidnapped, hurt, beaten, killed, 
The Black Hand was also responsible for most of the prejudice against Italians that you saw from the rest of the country at the time. So the Black Hand starts coming after Colosimo. They want him to pay $50,000 to them. Colosimo was not about to pay this, but he also knew the repercussions of ignoring a Black Hand note. So Colosimo's like, I right, nephew, I love you to death and I totally respect the progress and success that you're having in Brooklyn, but you're going to come over to me now. Torrio relocated to Chicago, and Colosimo made him his second-in-command. Torrio was the co-owner of the Harvard Inn in Coney Island. That was a pretty successful restaurant and saloon with Frankie Yale. Colosimo and Victoria, they pretty much, they offered to pay all of Johnny's expenses for him to relocate to Chicago and for him to live in the brownstone with them if he would be Colosimo's bodyguard. Since Torrio had already been involved in the Black Hand in New York, and the years and years of gang wars in New York had started to wear Torrio down, he agreed to relocate to Chicago to live with his aunt and uncle in Chicago. So he was down to move in with aunt and uncle Colosimo and be a bodyguard. He sold a share of the Harvard Inn and he put New York behind him for good. So Torrio comes up to Chicago and his main objective right away the second he touches down is to take care of this black hand threat to Colosimo. His plan of action was pretty much a Trojan horse. He had Colosimo promise to make a payment to the black hand. When three members of the group came to collect from him, Torrio had a carriage with gunmen inside waiting for them and killed all three of the men that came to collect the payment. Colosimo took Torrio with him on his rise to the top. He appointed Torrio as his bodyguard, but he started to notice that Torrio was actually really good with finances and leadership. He was good at a lot more than just being muscle. He put him in charge of managing his prostitution houses, and Torrio came to be known as a male madam. Typically, whorehouses were managed by women, but Torrio was just really good at it, so why not? Breaking those gender roles in the 1920s. By the following year, Colosimo opened a cafe called Colosimo's Cafe. It was a restaurant and nightclub located at 2126 South Wabash Avenue Street. I don't know. I keep just seeing 2126 South Wabash. It doesn't say street, avenue, circle, nothing. It's just Wabash. So we're going to call it 2126 South Wabash. Weird, but whatever. I guess I'm not used to that because I know the Queens area is like 21st Street is completely different area than 21st Road. And in, in areas in Queens, it'll be like 21st Street, 21st Road, 21st Way. And, and they're right next to each other. So I don't know. I'm used to it being street, way, circle, drive, whatever. But I guess maybe in Chicago, it can just be Wabash. I, I don't know. Whatever. It's 2126 South Wabash. I don't know why I'm sitting here elaborating on it so much. This cafe turned out to be a real success. It started out as just like, you know, a, another restaurant that was opened in Chicago. But Colosimo took it and he made it really successful. Prominent people from Chicago or prominent people visiting Chicago made this a destination. Clarence Darrow, a famous American lawyer who became famous for his involvement in a high-profile case, think that era's Caitlyn Jenner. He made this a hangout and people would attend just for hopes of catching a glimpse of him. Famous Italian opera singers were known to hang out there on the regular and it just attracted people in the area in hopes of running into a star 
And plus, if that's where famous people hang out, obviously it must be an amazing place, right? I've just got to go. It was known as a place that you'd have an amazing night out with good music, excellent food, and fine wine. The people who attended knew that it belonged to Big Jim Colosimo, obviously because of the name. Most also knew about his ties to the mafia. The allure of being in an illicit but sophisticated atmosphere made this place become Chicago's after-hours destination. In order to attend this place, you had to be impeccably dressed. Even though there was probably a huge mafia presence in the club, everybody from the mafia to civilians were required to behave in a civil manner. This was not the type of place that fights were broken up regularly. If there was a fight, people were immediately thrown out and never let in again. So a lot of the mafia hangouts that you see, there's fights, there's people acting rowdy. That was not this place. Thieves and gamblers, millionaires, merchants, bankers, school teachers, even the chief of police came to the cafe. It really was just anybody and everybody that came. It got so popular that he had to build an annex next door. People attended the main restaurant, which was more of like a cabaret until about one o'clock in the morning when the restaurant closed to abide by the city's tavern closing laws. That was okay though, because once the restaurant closed, you just moved into the north room to continue your amazing night in the late night fine dining room. Big Jim Colosimo at this point is making about $50,000 a month between the gambling, the brothels, and the racketeering. This was his estimated income before he opened a famous nightclub. I want to just stop and take a look at that real quick, because sometimes I say these numbers and it's like, yeah, whatever, that's pretty typical for a mafia guy or somebody that's rich. This income was estimated around the year 1910. To put $50,000 a month in income into perspective, the average American salary in 1910 was, drum roll please, two dollars to $400 a year. People were making $400 a year while Colosimo is making $50,000 a month. $400 a year is $33.33 per month. Let me give you a better picture of what life looked like in 1910. Only 14% of homes had bathtubs. There were only 8,000 cars in the entire world and only 144 miles of paved roads. On these roads, people could drive a maximum of 10 miles an hour. The average U.S. wage was 22 cents an hour. An accountant made about $2,500 a year. A veterinarian made about fifteen dollars to $4,000 a year. And a mechanical engineer made about $5,000 a year. Sugar cost four cents. Eggs were about 14 cents a dozen and coffee was 15 cents a pound. So imagine living in that time making $50,000 a year. That's crazy. The average American salary in 2021 was $51,480. So in 2021, the yearly income is $1,480 more than Colosimo's monthly income in 1910. So moving forward, after he opened Colosimo's Cafe, he teamed up with Torrio and opened a brothel on 2222 South Wabash. Again, there's no road or street or drive, nothing, just South Wabash. Colosimo helped Torrio buy this in order for it to be Torrio's new headquarters. It was a four-story building with an office and a saloon. It was used as a gambling house and the fourth floor was a brothel. The business was called Four Deuces because 
because the address was made up of four twos. Do any of you old people, like me, remember a time where deuces was an appropriate thing to say instead of goodbye? I remember that. It's so, like, cringy now. When you used to say it in person, you typically did this. And you were just such a cool person. Well, that's why he called the brothel four deuces. Two's deuces. One day, Torio's old friend Frankie Yale wrote to him. He asked him if he could give one of his employees a job because his employee had gotten into some trouble and needed to get out of New York fast. Torio agreed, and Al Capone was sent to Chicago to work at the Four Deuces for him. Many of the employees that were hired at this place ended up getting involved in the mafia. Torio hired Capone as a bartender and a bouncer, and his relationship with Torio is how he got involved in Chicago crime at the time. Since Capone was already having some serious issues in New York, like when he got the scar on his face after harassing Frank Galluccio's sister, Frank Galluccio was a made guy, and Capone made a loud remark mark at the bar that he was working at. He said, you got a nice ass, honey. And I mean that as a compliment. Believe me. The entire bar stopped and stared. Frank Galluccio was not only a made guy, but he was pretty well known in Brooklyn. He tried to slash Capone's throat after Capone charged him, but he got him in the face instead. He put three really deep gashes on the side of Capone's face, and he gave him a nickname that he walked around with for the rest of his life, Scarface. So this had all gone down in Brooklyn. Galluccio was ordered by the bosses of the mafia to apologize to Capone. Galluccio said that he actually profusely apologized once he saw what his face looked like. He genuinely felt bad and really didn't need to be ordered to say sorry. Capone actually ended up bringing Galluccio over to Chicago to work as a bodyguard for him later. Anyway, life is going really well for Colosimo. He has over 200 brothels. He has a famous restaurant nightclub. He's into gambling. He's into racketeering. He's raking in money left and right. And he's building a lot of influence in Chicago. On January 17th, Prohibition started. Prohibition is, it's, it's a ratification of the American Constitution, the 18th Amendment to be exact that banned the manufacture, transportation, and sale of any type of intoxicating liquor. The ban was put in place because of a lot of reasons. Some were religious ideations. Laws had been put in place in some states as early as the 1820s and 30s because of a wave of religious revivalism and a perfectionist movement. By the time prohibition became a federal law, alcohol was already illegal in many states. It was seen to be associated with crime and morally corrupt behavior. Illegal saloons started popping up in urban areas pretty quickly, and they were usually attended by immigrants. Americans looked down their noses at immigrants at the time, and they used what happened at those saloons as further proof that alcohol is bad. Politicians just wanted to win the immigrants' votes, so they could be found a lot of the times at the saloons exchanging votes for favors. Pretty much, they would go to the saloons and say, hey, if you vote for me, I'll get you a job, I'll give you legal assistance, I'll give you food baskets, whatever it's going to take to get your votes. This led to separate factions that warred with each other, as we always see in American history. It has always been and always will be a thing. Today we see, like, Democrat versus Republican, those who hate Trump versus those who drive around with his face plastered all over their truck and have flags. 
pro-gun versus people who want to see stronger laws put in place to purchase guns, pro versus anti-abortion. The list can literally go on and on and on for days. Well, back then it was wet versus dry. The wet population were the ones that were in favor of alcohol versus the dry population who was in favor of abolishing alcohol. Another huge contributing factor to making alcohol illegal in America was women. To women, alcohol was this destructive force that came in between their family and their marriage. The Anti-Saloon League was established in 1893. Factories supported prohibition so that their workers could have less accidents and be more productive. So pretty much it was just drunk men pissed people off. That really is what it comes down to. They they piss people off. Everybody surrounding drunk men were trying to take alcohol away so that they would just be better people. By the time that Prohibition was passed, 33 states had already made alcohol illegal. Prohibition actually accounted for like a huge raise in the Mafia's status and the number of members that we saw in the Mafia at the time. Bootlegging became a really popular way for the Mafia to make money at the time. And this is kind of like a gateway People that really hadn't ever committed crimes before got involved in bootlegging. And then the bootlegging ended up getting them more involved in crime overall. There was a huge spike in crime during Prohibition. And I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that alcohol was illegal. So Yes, you see this spike in criminal activity, but it's mostly people getting arrested for making and selling and consuming alcohol. When Prohibition became a law, Johnny Torrio still had friends back in Brooklyn where he came from. He wanted to start getting into the bootlegging game, and he wanted it bad. People that were already involved in the mafia were already making money off of bootlegging, and they were making more money than they had ever dreamed of. They recruited more and more people to run the alcohol and to make the alcohol, and Torrio got little dollar signs in his eyes. Colosimo wanted absolutely no part of bootlegging. His income was insanity already, and he didn't want to move into bootlegging because he felt like it attracted federal attention that they just didn't need. Dale Winter, a small-town orchestra singer from Grand Rapids, Michigan, came to Colosimo's restaurant to audition to perform at the nightclub. The audition had been set up by Jack Late a writer at the Tribune. Colosimo instantly fell in love with this girl. Winter was living in a hotel with her mother, and she was really struggling to make ends meet. She sang in the choir at South Park Methodist Church. When I picture this girl in my head, she's just like the picture of innocence. Like this little church-going choir girl that's mousy and just proper and just innocent. After the audition, Colosimo set up singing lessons for her with Giacomo Spadone an operatic conductor who was a voice coach for Enrico Caruso, who was a famous Italian opera star, and Mario Lanza, a Hollywood film star in the late 1940s and 50s. He served with the Met for 10 years and the Chicago Opera Company for over 20 years. He also got her an etiquette course because she had grown up in a small town and she really didn't know the ins and outs of how to be a lady. She would influence Colosimo to wear quieter clothing and urged him to speak more softly, and he listened. It sounds like the two were really good for each other. In March of 1920, Colosimo got divorced from Victoria Moresco. A month later, he eloped with Winter to West Baden Springs, Indiana. As soon as they got back from the honeymoon, they bought a house on the south side of Chicago. 
go together. A month after their wedding, they were still absolutely head over heels in love with each other. On May 11th, 1920, they had a dinner date in Chicago's Loop area, which was just super glitzy and glammy and, you know rich people. But he called her to let her know that he was going to be a little late to dinner. He said he had to meet a guy at the restaurant and that it was important. Torrio called Colosimo and told him that a shipment was coming into the restaurant. He headed over to the restaurant, which was almost deserted. He was driven there by his chauffeur. Not a driver like we typically see mafia guys have. His chauffeur. Most guys in a position of power have drivers. They typically utilize soldiers in the family and the soldiers are trying to rise through the ranks so they use them for drivers runners, other things that the mafia needs, but doesn't trust them to do more. His chauffeur was driving him in his Pierce Arrow. I'm not much a fan of ancient, <coughs> I mean, um, <coughs> classic cars, but I feel like any classic car guy in the world would blow their load on this thing. It was a beautiful car. It was very expensive and it was just exactly what you would expect someone making $50,000 a month to make. The restaurant was still closed. It was only afternoon hours. This is a nighttime place, so it's still closed. It's pretty much deserted. He walked into his rear office. He said hello to his secretary, and he went into his office. He went to his front lobby, where he was listening to his record player. A dark figure came up behind him and shot off two shots. One went into a glass pane, and the other one went into the back of Colosimo's head. The secretary gave a very accurate description of the shooter to the police as soon as the shooting happened. But let's not forget that we're looking at mafia affairs right now. He was exactly accurate the night of the shooting in his description to police. But once the police brought him down to the station to do a live police lineup, he wouldn't point to Yale, who was exactly who the description described. Obviously, somebody from Yale's team had a chance to get their hands on this poor kid and put the fear of God into him so that he wouldn't identify Yale in this lineup. Johnny Torrio arranged the funeral for Colosimo. There was an asinine amount of flowers, and the entire event was just extremely over-the-top, decadent. Multiple politicians, union leaders, and pillars of society joined to say their farewells to Colosimo. He was buried in a $7,500 coffin in 1920. The casket alone would cost $105,000 today. The police seem to believe that Frankie Yale, the guy who Capone was originally working for back in Brooklyn, made the trek to Chicago to help out his friends Torrio and Capone, who had asked him to kill Colosimo. Yale was the main suspect, but he wasn't ever officially charged. At this time, Colosimo was the boss of the Chicago Mafia family. Colosimo wanted absolutely nothing to do with bootlegging, so Capone and Torrio wanted Colosimo gone. This is some dirty shit right here, and it pisses me off really bad, because the Mafia is supposed to be this brotherhood, this family, and Torrio, who is his nephew and second-in-command, kills him because he doesn't want want to go into bootlegging. And for what? Greed? Like, oh, I want to get into bootlegging and my boss won't let me. Wah, let me kill him. Like, talk about going from one to a hundred 
real friggin' quick. Torio called him to tell him that there was a shipment, which meant that Colosimo and Torio, they weren't even beefing. Like, Colosimo had no idea that they weren't even friends, let alone him going to the extent to have him killed. Like, this whole situation is, it's so messed up. They just turn on their own, they kill their own, they don't care. There is two sides of this argument as well. Torio was correct. There was a whole lot of profit in bootlegging. I mean, if you want proof of that, just go ahead and look at every single mafia member at the time. And they were all bootlegging, every single one of them. Bootlegging was a huge income. It cost a very little amount of money to make knockoff alcohol. And because alcohol was illegal, consumers were willing to pay pretty much anything to get their hands on it. The prohibition agents were not actually police. They were political appointees, and they were not subject to the rules of the U.S. Civil Service. In layman's terms, they were low-paid, very low-skilled men that were just thrown into this job and knew nothing about it, and they were very, very easy to pay off, and it was easy to get them to look the other way about your illegal operations. So while they are bringing federal heat onto them, most of the time, these guys are getting paid off and kind of just looking the other way. When Torrio brought this argument to Colosimo, he said, absolutely not, no way, no how. Yes, these guys are absolute jokes, but they're federal jokes. Colosimo had been operating whorehouses, rackets, gambling, all within the Chicago borders for a very long time, and he never had issues before because he was able to pay off Chicago police officers. Getting the feds involved was never a good thing. He wasn't wrong. Look at the fate Al Capone suffered. What eventually took him down? The feds. Now, here's where we get into a little bit of the murky waters. History has told us that Colosimo was killed because he was absolutely 100% dead set against bootlegging at all. He didn't want to deal with illegal alcohol in any way, shape, or form. He was willing to give no leeway, and that's why Torrio had him killed. This isn't exactly true, though. Colosimo did support Torrio bootlegging. He just didn't support his expansion as far as he wanted to go. Torrio wanted to go outside of Chicago, into the suburbs and towns that were surrounding Chicago, but Colosimo didn't want to expand the bootlegging that far. He wanted to keep it all within the Chicago limit. He had invested $25,000 in a brewery before Prohibition even started, knowing that Prohibition was coming. The brewery was going to be run by one of his saloon operators, Jake Greasy Thumb Guzik, and would supply illegal alcohol during all of Prohibition, i.e. bootlegging. But with the federal government overseeing Prohibition laws, he didn't want to move outside of Chicago. Torrio did, and that's what ended up getting Colosimo killed. I think at the end of the day, Torrio was just a selfish, greedy dude that didn't care about anything except making money, and he'd kill absolutely anybody to make that happen. The Lords of the Levy got behind Torrio when he took Colosimo's position. When Capone killed Torrio, he easily could have removed them from politics if he wanted to. He really didn't have any need for them whatsoever, and he definitely would have, except he remembered their loyalty to both Colosimo and Torrio. Their connection to Capone made them even more legit, and that's where Hinky Dink ended up becoming 
becoming Cook County Democratic Committeeman. There was also a theory thrown around that his ex-wife, Victoria Moresco, killed him because she was pissed that she didn't get enough in the divorce. She and her brothers were considered prime suspects by police at the time of Colosimo's murder, but they eventually decided to fully back the idea that Torrio had him killed because he wanted to be able to expand his bootlegging operation. They could never get enough evidence to indict, so nobody was ever arrested for his murder. The theory that Victoria killed him actually strengthens the theory that Torrio did it to me. Torrio and Colosimo, they were best friends, and Colosimo always said that Torrio was his nephew. Well, only two months before Colosimo's death, he left Torrio's aunt. One month later, he eloped with another woman and flaunted his happy relationship in front of her eyes. Dale Winter and Colosimo were all over each other, all over Chicago. Do you think Torrio was happy to see this when he went to Victoria's house and she's still grieving the relationship that she had been in for 18 years? Probably not. I'm sure he was super pissed about that. And if it was Torrio that did it, I bet you that had a huge part in it. I don't see that written anywhere, but it's like crazy to me that I don't see it written anywhere. Torrio literally left his life in New York to come and be with Victoria. They were really close. So I don't know how nobody has suggested that like as much as he wanted to increase his revenue in bootlegging, I guarantee you it was it was pretty involved in the fact that he really hurt her. It wouldn't make sense for Victoria to kill him anyway. The secretary described a man fleeing the scene of the crime. She could have had her hair slicked back. It could have been one of her brothers. I don't know. I, I just, I don't think that Victoria had anything to do with this death. I 100% think it was Torrio. All right, that's all I have for Big Jim Colosimo. Thanks so much for hanging out with me. I hope you enjoyed and I hope you come back next week. If you have any suggestions for Mafia members that you'd like me to cover, go ahead and drop them in the comments below or you can message me on Instagram or Facebook. Please don't forget to like, share, subscribe, follow, do all the things and have a great week and I'll see you next time. Bye.